Welcome back, Ninja Nerds. Today, we're going to be talking about hyperaldosteronism. We've got a great episode lined up for you all today. But as always, before we get started, please go ahead and check out ninjanerd.org. Everything that you could possibly need, we're covering it all, okay? We have our notes, illustrations. We got the podcast episodes. We got lectures up there. Please go ahead and check that out, and please do subscribe. Zach, how are you doing today, man? I feel very good today, very well-rested, ready to hopefully spread some awesome knowledge on hyperaldosteronism to you guys. That sounds great. We both got our cup of coffee. We're ready to go. <laughs> we're uh, the morning grind here, and we're uh, going to have some fun today. So first things first, hyperaldosteronism. We got to talk a little bit about the stimulators, the physiology of really what are the stimulators of aldosterone? How does it work? What's the pathway? And maybe even, Zach, if you could talk about some of the aldosterone target organs, the effects that happen, please go ahead and shed some knowledge on that for us. All right. I shall try. So I think the big thing to start off with is kind of aldosterone is a steroid hormone produced by the adrenal cortex, more specifically what's called the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal cortex. Now, aldosterone is produced under what particular circumstances? One of the most powerful stimuluses of aldosterone production is the renin-angiotensin-2 system. So we have to go back and think for a second, okay, well, renin, what is that made by? Oh, that's made by the kidneys, the juxtaglomerular cells. Well, what tells renin to be produced? There's three particular reasons. One is there's an occlusion to blood flow. Second is there's low blood volumes. And third is there is a low blood pressure. If you think about all three of these issues, all of them lead to low renal perfusion. In other words, there's not enough blood flow going through the kidneys for those JG cells to sense. So whenever there's low renal perfusion due to low blood volume, low blood pressure, or an occlusion to blood flow, this triggers renin to be produced. Renin then activates angiotensinogen and turns them into angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 then goes to the lungs where there's the capillary endothelial enzyme ACE who converts angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2. And guess what angiotensin 2 does? It goes to the cells of the zona glomerulosa, tells them, hey, start pumping out that aldosterone, baby. And aldosterone will then be synthesized and released from the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal cortex. So that's the basic kind of like stimulus. There's other indirect stimuli. <clears throat> So this could be due to like situations where the potassium is really high. Sometimes if you have hyperkalemia, this can also stimulate aldosterone production. And the second thing could be hyponatremia that could also stimulate aldosterone production. And we'll go over those and it'll make sense of why low sodium and high potassium could be potential stimuli of hyperaldosteronism or aldosterone production, I should say. And again, we'll also talk about going through the renin angiotensin system, how that is a really profound effect on, again, aldosterone production. So again, three particular stimulators to the aldosterone pathway is the renin-angiotensin-2 system, second is hyperkalemia, and third is hyponatremia. But remember that renin-angiotensin is the most powerful stimulator. So then we get to the third thing that Rob said, which is, okay, how can we understand the effects of aldosterone? So what are some of its target organs? What are some of those effects? And I think the next thing to also understand is if those normal effects are present, okay, we understand that. But what happens when the aldosterone is through the freaking roof? It's so high. What are some of the actual of pathophysiological effects, my friends. So the big thing to understand is aldosterone has a very profound effect on what's called the distal convoluted tubule of the kidneys. And so what it does is it actually, it's a steroid hormone. So it passes right through the cell membrane, goes into two cells, the principal cells of the DCT and the intercalated cells of the DCT. 
When it acts on the principal cells, the primary function is two things. One is it reabsorbs sodium into the bloodstream. So that's one particular mechanism. If you reabsorb sodium into the bloodstream, what happens to the sodium in the blood? It goes up. So they develop hypernatremia. So do you see why hyponatremia could be a stimulus for aldosterone? Because normally what it wants to do is reabsorb sodium to bring up the sodium. All right. Problem with hypernatremia is that there's two things. One is it can hold on to water inside of your actual blood vessels. So if you have more water kind of in your blood vessels, what happens then is that your blood volume increases <clears throat> and subsequently your blood pressure increases. So you could develop hypertension. This is actually a, a hypertension that actually is kind of refractory to your normal antihypertensive meds. And so sometimes this can precipitate what's called secondary hypertension, which is again, a type of hypertension that is usually refractory to at least three antihypertensives. So hypernatremia, blood volume increases, blood pressure increases, and a refractory type of secondary hypertension can ensue. The other thing is that when you're hypernatremic, imagine you just eat like um, a bunch of Chinese food, right? And then there's it just it's just loaded with salt. What happens after you eat that Chinese food? You are probably thirstier than you've ever been in your entire life, right? And you just down a bunch of water or some type of fluid. That's called polydipsia. And that's usually another effect that can happen with hyperaldosteronism because when they cause hypernatremia, not only does the blood volume and blood pressure go up, but so does your thirst mechanism. So watch out for that on the exams. One really important point that is, I think, sometimes confusing is that when you think about, oh, okay, if I'm reabsorbing sodium, I'm holding on to water, wouldn't I get puffy like the Michelin man? Wouldn't I get some edema? There's something called aldosterone escape. It's really cool. So whenever you kind of reabsorb sodium and water, your blood volume increases, and then your heart actually stretches more because it's getting filled more. When it stretches more, it then triggers the release of something called atrial natriuretic peptide, which then causes you to pee out some of that sodium and water so that you don't get too edematous. So that's one really interesting thing is that you would think that these patients have a lot of edema. They do not because of the aldosterone escape mechanism. Okay. So, so far, one effect is hypernatremia, which can cause you to have be thirsty, can cause secondary hypertension. And again, there is no edema due to aldosterone escape. The second effect of uh, aldosterone at the DCT, um, particularly in the principal cells, is it causes potassium excretion. So then if you get rid of potassium, what happens to the potassium in my blood? It goes down. It can actually cause the actual potassium to go down pretty significantly. And we call this hypokalemia. Sometimes it can be so severe and it can get really, really high. Uh, to, I mean, get really, really low to the point where ADH isn't able to exert its effect on the actual collecting duct cells. So what does ADH do? It normally reabsorbs water across the collecting duct into the blood. But if your potassium is so low, this interferes with ADH being able to exert its effects on the vasopressin 2 receptors. You don't reabsorb water and you pee a massive amount of water out into the urine. What is that called? polyuria. And this is due to hypokalemia causing something called nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. So those are the things that I want you to remember for the effect on the principal cells. Hypernatremia, hypokalemia, the effects of hypernatremia is polydipsia, hypertension, and the effects of hypokalemia is nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which can present as polyuria.
Okay, aldosterone exerts some pretty intense effects on the intercalated cells of the DCT. All I want you to know is it triggers these cells to secrete protons into the urine and reabsorb bicarbonate into the blood. So if the protons are getting excreted and bicarb is getting reabsorbed, the bicarb in your blood will go up and the pH in your blood will also go up. So this will cause a metabolic alkalosis to ensue. So those are the three primary effects to remember that aldosterone has on its target organs, hypernatremia, hypokalemia, and metabolic alkalosis. The effects of these things is that hypernatremia can cause polydipsia and hypertension, hypokalemia can cause nephrogenic DI and polyuria, and metabolic alkalosis just causes your pH to go up. But that would cover the stimulators of aldosterone, Rob, the pathway, and then the target organs and effects and what happens when it's just way too high. So Zach laid down a really great foundation there. We have an understanding of aldosterone and hyperaldosteronism. So now we have high levels of aldosterone. Are we just going to say, oh, it's just, it is that way. It's just, it's just what it is. No, no big deal. Just that's how it is. No, no, we have to understand the causes. Why are aldosterone levels so high? What happens to make these levels high? Zach laid down. All right. I got you, brother. So when we talk about why aldosterone is too high, there's particular causes. One is we have to go back and think about the stimulus. What was the primary? I, 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 I repeated it, I think, three times. What was the primary stimulus of aldosterone production? It was the renin and angiotensin II stimulus. So we have to understand then that what was the three stimulators of renin that triggered that angiotensin II levels to rise and cause aldosterone to rise? What was the stimulator? Low renal perfusion. So if a patient has an occlusion to blood flow, what would be an occlusion to blood flow? The most common cause, I'm going to repeat it two times, is renal artery stenosis. The most common cause of occlusion to blood flow is a renal artery stenosis. That'll decrease the perfusion because you have a big fat plaque that's occluding blood flow to the actual kidney. That's one. Another one is low BP. So if your blood pressure is a little bit lower, you're not perfusing organs as well. So in patients who have CHF due to poor cardiac output, cirrhosis can also cause poor cardiac output, but also cirrhosis and nephrotic syndrome can reduce your albumin levels so that you don't hold on to water. So you don't have as much effective arterial volume in your blood. And that also affects the perfusion of the kidneys. The third thing is that your blood volume is so low, you're hypovolemic. Maybe you're pooping, you're peeing too much, or you're peeing, uh, so I'm sorry, either you're pooping, you're vomiting too much, or you're peeing way too much. And so think about this in patients who have like GIT losses, lots of vomiting, lots of diarrhea, or they're taking too much of their diuretic, okay? So their Lasix that they're supposed to be taking every day. In those particular situations, that will lower the renal perfusion, trigger the renin to be produced, trigger angiotensin II to be produced, and trigger aldosterone to be produced in high amounts, okay? That is what we call secondary hyperaldosteronism. It means that the aldosterone production is not due to the adrenal cortex, it's due to something else, such as the renin-angiotensin II system, okay? The second particular light of causes would be the primary hyperaldosteronism. This means that it's coming from the adrenal cortex. Remember the zona glomerulosa cells? It's the ones that make the aldosterone. So the question would then come, okay, why is the adrenal cortex pumping out all of this aldosterone? It's a tumor. It's likely maybe some type of a tumor that's actually just gained a capacity to produce too much aldosterone, an adrenal adenoma. And you know adrenal adenomas, we call this a very specific disease. We call it Kahn syndrome. Don't forget that, guys. The other thing is it could be a carcinoma, so some type of nasty tumor. And then the last one, which is actually really important, is what's called adrenal hyperplasia. So it's just an increased number of these actual cells 
They're not neoplastic yet, but they're just in an increased number and amount and size. A big thing to take away here is adrenal hyperplasia is usually bilateral in presentation. Adrenal adenomas are usually unilateral in presentation. So that's a big pearl to take away. So we have secondary due to the renin-angiotensin 2 system. They're just too high because of low renal perfusion. We have primary hyperaldosteronism because of adrenal tumor like an adenoma carcinoma or just too much thickening of the actual cells there which is usually what's called adrenal hyperplasia remember adenoma unilateral hyperplasia bilateral the last particular reason why we could have and i'm going to say this because you guys can't see me quotation marks high aldosterone levels is what's called pseudo hyperaldosteronism. It's actually really cool. So imagine you have some type of steroid hormone that's in the blood that acts like aldosterone and causes all the effects that we said that aldosterone does. It causes hypernatremia, hypokalemia, metabolic alkalosis. But it doesn't actually cause the aldosterone levels in the blood to be truly high because they aren't aldosterone. They're acting like aldosterone. That's really interesting. What could that be due to? Well, there's other hormones that are made by your actual adrenal cortex, my friends. Androgens might have mineral corticoid capabilities. Cushing syndrome, whenever you make too much cortisol, can have a lot of a mineral corticoid capacity. So in patients who have Cushing syndrome or what's called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where they produce maybe a little bit too much of these like androgen hormones, they may have mineral corticoid-like capacity and cause these effects without truly having a high aldosterone level. And the last thing is be careful with all that licorice that you may be eating. Believe it or not, there is chemicals within licorice that has the ability to potentially um, increase what's called a effect of a steroid hormone similar to aldosterone. So that would be the three particular causes, right? So we got secondary high renin-angiotensin-2 system, primary adrenal cortex problem, adenoma, carcinoma, hyperplasia, and then pseudo, some kind of molecule that's acting like aldosterone, but it's not, but it's producing the same target organ effects. This could be licorice, Cushing syndrome, or congenital adrenal hyperplasia. One quick thing to add on to this. With secondary hyperaldosteronism, what was the primary thing that was triggering aldosterone to be produced? It was renin. So what would happen to our renin levels here? They would be high. Because the high renin was the stimulus for the high aldosterone production. Remember that renin is high, aldosterone is high, and secondary hyperaldosteronism. In primary hyperaldosteronism, where was the problem? It was the adrenal gland. It was producing too much aldosterone. Well, remember, there's a negative feedback, my friends. So if aldosterone is too high, it's going to tell the JG cells of the kidney, hey, stop producing renin. You don't need to because the aldosterone levels are already too high. So what would happen to the renin levels in primary hyperaldosteronism? They should drop. So in primary hyperaldosteronism, aldosterone should be high, but the renin should be low. And in the pseudo hyperaldosteronism, really is the aldosterone high? No, it's not really the problem. The aldosterone's not even really high at all. It's just in this maybe a normal, possibly low level, and I'll explain why in a second. But really, the problem is not because there's a lack of aldosterone or high aldosterone. It's just these other hormones that are acting like him. So imagine you have this other hormone. Maybe it's a cortisol. Maybe it's androgens. Maybe it's something from the licorice. And they're mimicking high aldosterone levels. What would that then tell the JG cells of the kidney to do? Stop making renin. Because they're going to think it's high aldosterone, even though it's not. Then it tells the adrenal cortex to stop doing what? Making aldosterone. 
So what would actually happen to the aldosterone and renin levels in pseudohyperaldosteronism? Aldosterone would actually be low and the renin levels would actually be low as well. So that's a very interesting tidbit. And I think it cues us up for the next step in this podcast. So now we have a patient who we highly suspect has hyperaldosteronism. Well, how do we definitively say now that, yes, you do have hyperaldosteronism? So now we have to move through the diagnostic workup, going through each step here of a diagnosis to say, yes, you definitively do have hyperaldosteronism. Yeah. So when we talk about the diagnostic workup, I would say, again, really think about this. If you have a patient who has, I think, one of the key things, refractory hypertension due to that hypernatremia and water uh, accumulation. That's one particular thing. If they have hypokalemia also associated with that and hypernatremia associated with that and they're not on a diuretic, I think that's also really important. But again, let's say that you have a patient refractory hypertension, hypokalemia, hypernatremia. The first thing that you should do, my friends, is check a plasma renin and a plasma aldosterone. Because right away, I already told you, I already queued us up for this. We already know now if the renin is low and the aldosterone is high, it's primary. We know that if the renin is high and the aldosterone is high, it's secondary. And we know if the aldosterone is low and the renin's low, it's pseudo-hyperaldosteronism. So that's a pretty easy step there, right? So again, first thing I want you to think about is, again, if it is primary, aldosterone is high because it's being produced from the adrenal cortex, exerting a negative feedback mechanism to tell the JG cells stop producing renin. So the renin level should be low. Now, what we prefer to do from a diagnostic preference is look at the ratio between the plasma aldosterone and the renin. And so what you'll do is you'll take the aldosterone and you'll divide it by the renin. And so if aldosterone levels are high and renin levels are low, that means you have a a small denominator and a very large numerator. What happens to the overall ratio then? It shoots through the roof. So you should have a high aldosterone-renin ratio. Preferably for most textbooks and sources, they say at least greater than 20. Okay? Now go to the next one. For secondary hyperaldosterone, and this is something to do with the kidneys, right, where the JG cells are producing too much renin due to low blood volume, low blood pressure, and occlusion of blood flow. In this particular situation, renin should be high, which then tells the adrenal cortex to make more aldosterone. So aldosterone should be high. So when you look at this, you have a very high numerator, but you even have a higher denominator because renin is the true stimulus. So if you have a large, large denominator and a decently high numerator, what's going to happen to the overall ratio? It's going to be lower in this particular situation. And we see the aldosterone renin ratio, we prefer to be less than 10 to truly suggest a secondary hyperaldosteronism. And then you would go searching for the cause once you find that one. Is it renal artery stenosis? So you may have to do something called a renal artery ultrasound to look for renal artery stenosis, which is very, very common, right? And you can confirm that with an angiogram. Or do they have congestive heart failure? Do they have cirrhosis? Do they have nephrotic syndrome? Or do they have a hypovolemia because they've been pooping and peeing too much or they're on a diuretic and they're just you know having a problem with that? You look through their history and other tests to really find the secondary cause. If it's, again, the other problem where we said they're taking licorice, they have congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or they have Cushing's, you would actually expect their aldosterone levels to be low because, again, Why? Because they're taking this substance or they're producing something of that kind of substance similar to aldosterone, telling the kidneys to stop making renin. Renin tells the adrenal cortex to stop making aldosterone. So aldosterone will be low. Renin will be low. There is another cause. Go looking for the Cushing's. Go looking for the congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And then ask them if they're eating licorice, which sounds weird, but that's really true. So if you've done this, 
and their aldosterone renin ratio is greater than 20, aldosterone was high, renin was low, you have a primary hyperaldosteronism. That's the one that we care about. How do we prove this? We do another test. We do what's called a salt suppression test. So what we do is we give these patients a oral or IV salt load. We give them like salt or we give them a normal saline push. And what we do is over a 24 hour period, if you do this, you'll check their urine. And what you want to know is, is, is the aldosterone in the urine high? Is it normal or low? So how do, let's think about this. You push salt into someone's bloodstream. What will that do to the salt sodium within the blood? It'll go up. So they'll develop hypernatremia. What did I tell you was the indirect stimuli of aldosterone production, hyponatremia and hyperkalemia. Now, <clears throat> aldosterone should increase your sodium levels. If your sodium levels are already high, do you think you're going to tell aldosterone to be produced then? No. So normally what should happen if the sodium is high? It should turn off the aldosterone production. And then what should happen is, is the amount of aldosterone circulating in your blood that then gets excreted into your urine should be lower. But in a patient who has primary hyperaldosteronism, you give them the salt, their sodium in the blood goes up. Guess what? The adrenal cortex doesn't give a dang about the sodium. It says, I'm still a tumor. I don't care. And I'm going to continue to keep pumping out aldosterone. And so aldosterone levels continue to be high. They continue to reabsorb sodium across the bloodstream, continue to excrete potassium and continue to cause metabolic alkalosis. And the aldosterone levels in the blood will be high. And then subsequently, they'll be excreted in high amounts into the urine. So what you'll see from doing this oral or salt IV suppression test is that you don't suppress aldosterone and aldosterone in the blood remains high or aldosterone in the urine remains high. And that is a definitive diagnostic test once you've done the plasma aldosterone and renin ratio test. Now, once you've confirmed that they have hyperaldosteronism primary from the aldosterone renin ratio and confirmed with the salt suppression test, you gotta go looking for what's the cause. Is it an adenoma, a hyperplasia, or a carcinoma? So get a CT or MRI of their abdomen and get a look at that adrenal gland. What did I tell you? Which one was unilateral? Adenomas. Which one was bilateral? Hyperplasia. And if it's carcinoma, usually off characteristic, you know, looking at the actual scan, you'll be able to tell if it's like greater than four um, uh, centimeters or if it has a lot of kind of irregularity or calcifications, you may be suggestive of a carcinoma. But let's come back to the adenoma or hyperplasia. Once you scan their belly, and you find, oh, there it is. There's an adrenal tumor. If it's bilateral, you already should think about hyperplasia. If it's unilateral, you should already think about adenoma. But that's not a perfect thing. So what we can do is, is we can actually literally sample some of the adrenal venous blood. So imagine you have the blood draining from the actual adrenal glands. What I'm going to do is, is I'm going to take blood from both of the adrenal glands at the same time. Once I take the blood draining from the adrenal glands at the same time, if the process is an adenoma and it's a unilateral lesion, I should only expect the aldosterone levels to be high in one of the adrenal veins. If the actual aldosterone level is high in both of the adrenal veins, it's a bilateral process, and that would be suggestive of hyperplasia. That is another way that we can confirm these tests. So if the scan shows a unilateral process, it's likely an adenoma. Confirm this with adrenal venous sampling, which only causes the aldosterone coming from that side to be high and normal on the other side. 
Whereas if it's a bilateral lesion on the imaging, you get the actual adrenal venous sampling. You would expect the blood that's actually coming from both adrenal veins to be high in aldosterone. That is the important kind of diagnostic cues. And that will lead you up to say, okay, it's an adenoma or it's a hyperplasia or it's a carcinoma. And again, I know that this is the primary causes. And that really kind of cue us up for the next step in this uh, podcast, Rob. We now have diagnosed our patient with hyperaldosteronism. We've gone through each process and saying, all right, we have to figure out the the actual actual cause because if we don't know the cause, we can't treat it effectively. We've done that. You guys have killed it up to this point. So now we got to move on to the treatment. We know the cause. We got to figure out how can we go about treating this patient with hyperaldosteronism. Yeah. So when we talk about this, let's say that we have that patient with a primary hyperaldosteronism, right? We figure out that it's bilateral hyperplasia. Generally with that, don't cut that, don't cut both the adrenal tumors out. That'd be disastrous. You'll have to have them on meds for the rest of their life. So generally in that particular situation, you can just put them on something called an aldosterone blocker. So spironolactone or eplernone, right? So in this particular situation, just put them on spironolactone or eplernone. There's no need to resect that actual adrenal tumors. And then they have to be on multiple medications to cover cortisol and androgen production, all this other stuff. Just block the aldosterone. So that would be what I would say for bilateral hyperplasia. Just put them on something called spironolactone or eplernone, which blocks the aldosterone, prevents the hypernatremia, prevents the hypokalemia, prevents the metabolic alkalosis and all the downstream effects from those electrolyte and acidosis, uh, alkalosis, Normalities. For the unilateral adenoma, that's one that I would actually cut out. It's likely going to continue to get bigger. It's likely going to cause problems. So you should just cut that out. But in the interim, as you're waiting for them to go and kind of get that surgery to cut out the tumor or to completely remove the adrenal gland itself, I would put them on spironolactone or eplernone to, again, continue to block the aldosterone that's causing these hypernatremic effects, the hypokalemic effects, and then the metabolic alkalosis effects. Once you've done that, you're kind of good to go from the primary hyperaldosteronism situation. The question that you guys may ask about the secondary one, what will we do about the secondary hyperaldosteronism? Really, you just treat the cause. If it's renal artery stenosis, generally, that's going to be one of those things that you consider ACE inhibitors. You might actually have to go in and actually kind of fix up that artery there and get some of the plaque out. Um, other things that if it's like CHF, obviously improve their CHF, use, put them on that goal directed medical therapy that's highlighted in our actual CHF lectures. And then on top of that, if they have cirrhosis or nephrotic syndrome, you can consider trying to get, get utilize albumin if necessary and provide better therapies for that. And if it's hypovolemia, give them back some fluid. If it's GI losses, um, or if it's renal losses, maybe kind of consider decreasing or holding on some of the diuretic doses. But that's generally how we would go about treating a patient with hyperaldosterone. Alrighty, well, there you have it. We have another episode done on hyperaldosteronism. We hope you all enjoyed it. And again, please do remember to go on ninjaner.org, grab your notes, your illustrations by getting a subscription. All right, Ninjaners, I really hope that you guys like this podcast. I hope it made sense. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. And man, as always, love you, thank you. And until next time. <music>